Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Darren, and it's nice to see you all with us this morning. I feel like I kicked somebody something here. All right, there's that. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, let me say, and I know you were already greeted when you first got here, but we, we love having guests here. And if you were invited by a friend or you came because you saw us on the website or whatever, we're glad that you're here in the room with us. If you're watching online, we're glad you're watching online, but we'd love to see you right here in the room. But if you're a guest, we don't want you to stay a guest for very long. And so one of the things I say every week, and I mean it every week, is let's figure out what it's going to take to make that transition from guests to family. We want you to feel like family around here. And so if I can help with that, uh, I'm happy to do that. Whatever. If you've got questions, you want to chat for a minute or out at the connect wall after the service, they'd love to meet you. And that way we can sort of connect with you more down the road. But, uh, just want to make sure you know you're welcome here. And if you're family here, we love you. And we're so glad you're here and glad you're bringing your friends with you. That's fun. So this morning, let me invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter three, as we dive in together, fun to be doing this on a on a family Sunday, we got some young people in the room and whatever, so that's exciting. Ecclesiastes is every young person's favorite book, so that works out great. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better... Than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Would you pray with me? God, we pray that you would bless our reading of your word uh, with understanding, with some clarity. God, we pray that you would give us insights, that you would give us peace. Um, We are created beings. We are finite. 
Our power is limited and our knowledge is limited. In fact, that's one of the major emphases in the book of Ecclesiastes is how little we know. And we see that here in Ecclesiastes 3 as well. We need you. We need your voice. We need your guidance. We need a sense of your presence. Um, And God, I pray that you would just move as we study your word, God, that you'd be glorified in that study, but that you would also bring a sense of quiet and rest and understanding to us in the things that we can comprehend and in the things that have not been given us to understand. And we we bless you in all of those. We pray for your guidance as we study. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. Uh, any of you <clears throat> who are <clears throat> soccer fans, we got, we got uh, like professional, I know if you're really a soccer fan, then you don't like that I'm calling it soccer. So if you're really a soccer fan, you want me to call it football, I get that. I'm going to take a little bit of a gamble here and, and use a, a sports illustration. Those of you who know me know I'm not super sporty, uh, except when it comes to the Dodgers and then some soccer as well. But I, I refed soccer for a little while when I lived in Long Beach. It was one of my favorite things I've ever done. It was a great way to meet with my neighbors. I, I knew tons of people in my neighborhood and all the coaches and all the other refs and a lot of the student players and whatever. I was refing anywhere between like U10 games all the way up to like college level games at the time. I was in better shape than I am now, if that's a question mark in your head. Uh, and I loved refing, but one of the things I love about refereeing for football or for soccer, I'm talking about world football, not American football. Um, And you might not know this, or you might if you're a soccer player or a fan, but one of the things I love about soccer is that the official clock... The official clock for a soccer match, you know where that is? It's on the center referee's wrist, right? They will put a clock up on the wall. They'll put it up. You, if you're in a stadium, if you go watch the you know, LAFC or the Galaxy or whatever, uh, they'll put a clock up on the wall, but that's not the official clock. That's just giving you a basic sense of the countdown for the half. But the official clock is right here on the referee's wrist. And I like that because the referee in soccer has some ability to make judgment calls, right? The referee in soccer is uh, not just upholding the rules, but he has the ability to sort of uh, actively, and as the game goes, to make some judgment calls in his own discretion. And some of that can be frustrating if you're a watcher, if you're a fan of football or soccer. Uh, It can be frustrating if you get to the end of the 45-minute half and your team is winning, and then the center referee announces that he's adding three minutes to the clock, or he's adding sometimes six minutes to the clock, right? He's sort of accumulated over time all the places where there's been stoppage. So if somebody falls down and they do that a lot, whether he's actually hurt or just pretending to be hurt, the referee is keeping track of how much time is lost off the clock. If somebody, uh, you know, has to take a water break or whatever, there are all these different things that can slow the game down and the referee is keeping track of that. And then at the end of the half, he will add on stoppage time and it's totally up to him. It's his discretion, how many minutes he wants to add. And if you're a fan and your team is up at the half and then the referee adds six minutes, it can be really frustrating because you thought you knew the game was about to be over and your team was going to win, but a lot of times there are goals scored in stoppage time and the whole momentum of the game can shift in those extra three or four or five minutes. The referee has a lot of power because he controls the clock. The reason I'm sharing that with you is that as a soccer fan, sometimes it's frustrating What Kohelet here in Ecclesiastes is articulating in chapter three is some of that very same frustration. The frustration that he's articulating in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is an awareness that there is someone who has the master clock on his wrist, but Kohelet doesn't know what time it is, and that's frustrating for him. Have you ever felt like that? 
You know that someone has the clock, that someone's keeping track, that someone is monitoring what season we're in, but you don't necessarily know what season we're in and what time it is, and you don't know how that's going to change your life. And it can be frustrating to not have the official clock on your wrist. It can be frustrating not to be the person who manages the official clock. It can certainly be frustrating to have someone add some time that changes the outcome that you might like. At the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, we have this beautiful poem. And if you're uh, of a certain generation, as I was reading it, you were hearing a melody, I get. Uh, there is a song that was not written by the birds, but fame, made famous by the birds, that takes these lyrics almost verbatim. So you may have heard those going as we went. I had lots of people who suggested that I play that clip for you this morning, but I know it's in your head anyway, so I figured I didn't need to waste the time with paying the copyright on it, right? You've got it in your head, and I, that didn't cost me anything. Here's the poem, and it is very beautiful, right? We look at this beginning, uh, the beginning of this section, and what we've got is this, uh, it's a poem that has what are called merisms, M-E-R-I-S-M-S. Those are contrasts that are meant to encapsulate the total of everything that goes between them. So we see all of these contrasts, and the contrasts come in different categories here. So at the beginning, we've got beginnings and endings. We've got emotions in here. We've got activities. We've got things that have to do with work. We've got things that have to do with feelings feelings and and, uh, sometimes with possessions. He says, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Once again, this idea of under heaven, we've seen the author use previously in the previous two chapters. And the idea here is is in the scope of everything that can be viewed by a human being. As he evaluates everything that he's seen and everything that he's experienced and everything he understands, he sees that there are these different seasons. And, And when he says seasons here, he's not talking about summer and winter and spring and fall. We know those are in place, but those are kind of added on. What he's saying is that there are different times and there are different chapters of our life. We go through these different cycles. God has created a world that he perceives as being cyclical. And he says, depending on who you are and what's happening, you're in these different seasons and sometimes you know it and sometimes you don't. He says there's things like a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Now we could go into meticulous detail, and there are, uh, there are theologians who've done that, evaluating each phrase and thinking about what it means. Uh, even in our preparation meeting this week, there was somebody who said that he took the time over a course of a, a, a year of time, and he just sort of meditated on each one of these little sections. But I don't necessarily think that's what the author is intending us to do. I think that can be a good practice. It might be a healthy exercise for you. But I think what the author is intending to do is to say, there are these seasons, and he gives us this beautiful poem, and you might be tempted to go, wow, finally the author has kind of turned a corner and there's something that's kind of uplifting, right? He gives us these contrasts that he's showing to encapsulate the whole spectrum of human activity, and he does it in this really beautiful way. He shows all of these different moments But not to burst your bubble, but at the end of the poem, he actually comes back around and once again, he makes the same conclusion we've seen him make time and time again in the last couple of weeks, right? He says, there is a time for everything, but it's futility, right? Or it's hevel. He says, there is a time for everything and God knows what time it is, but he hasn't told us. And while we know that we're in different seasons, we don't necessarily know what season we're in. Some of you, for instance, this morning may be in a season that feels really great, but you'll find out later that things weren't going so well. Some of you are struggling with illness and sickness. 
And we know there are these different seasons and these different times. And for all the beauty of the poem, the, the final accounting that he gives is God has organized these things in this way. We know that there are these rhythms and he knows what he's doing, but we don't know what he's doing. He doesn't give us the clock. He doesn't give us the key to unlock it all. It says here at the end of the poem, he says, what gain has a worker from his toil? And the implied answer is no gain. We've been talking over the last couple of weeks about the fact that Kohelet has looked at everything he's experienced and everything he's done, and he sees that there's ultimately no profit in it because at the end of the day, everybody dies. And whatever it is you've collected and whatever it is you've put into your bank and whatever it is that you've put into your attic, that's going to go to somebody else. We saw this last week. And you don't know whether that's somebody else that's going to get all that stuff you worked for is going to do something smart with it or wise with it or whether your ancestors may be idiots, right? We saw that last week. And everything you worked for disappears. He gets to the end of this poem and he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That word there that's translated beautiful could also be translated appropriate or fitting, right? So we look at it again and we say, oh, there's this really pretty poem. We've all heard this song. And then he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And there's a part of us that wants to say, well, what that means is that every chapter of life that you happen to be in is a beautiful chapter. But some of you in the room this morning, I don't think you describe the chapter of life you're in this morning as a beautiful one. For some of you, you're dealing with real life and death struggles. For some of you, you just lost your job or your marriage is falling apart or you're not sure what's happening with your children or there are all kinds of great concerns. And when you see him say, hey, you know what? God makes everything beautiful in its time. It's sort of hard to figure out the way that adds up. Well, understand that what he's saying is that God has an overarching purpose and God does have a beautiful plan or an appropriate plan. But what he will go on to say is that even though God sees the beauty in every season, we don't necessarily always see that. He doesn't necessarily always explain it to us. He says, he, that's God, has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. When it says eternity here in in verse 11, he doesn't mean um, the afterlife. He's going to talk about the afterlife further in chapter 3. When he says eternity, he means that each and every one of us have a deep desire to understand the grand narrative. That each and every one of us have a desire for spoilers in our life. You know what I mean? We don't like spoilers when it comes to movies and television programs. We don't want people to tell us the ending. Unless you're watching something scary and then maybe you do that thing where you're like, just tell me if the lady dies, right? But most of the time we don't want spoilers. When it comes to our lives though, I think most of us would like to know what's around the corner. We would like to know why the things that are happening currently are happening to us. Why is this so hard? Or why was last month so easy and this month so difficult, right? And what Kohelet is saying to us here is that God has organized all of these things. Birth and death, harvest and sowing, right? He's he's organized all these things in a way that's appropriate and beautiful. And he's placed into each of us a longing to know the beginning from the end. When he says a longing for eternity that's in all of us, he's not saying that we all have a longing to go to heaven. I think sometimes that's the way this gets translated. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's a built-in thing in all of us that wishes we knew the answers. There's a built-in thing in all of us that wishes we understood the, the situation we're currently in and why it's going down the way it is. What is God doing? How does it make sense? How will this all work out in the end? 
And he says, God has placed within us a desire to know the beginning from the end, and yet he's also created us in such a way that we cannot understand those answers. He says, all of this is Hevel, and I would guess you would agree with that, right? The word Hevel, if you haven't been with us in the other weeks, means absurdity, or it means meaninglessness. It, It literally means breath or a vapor, life, all of this, trying to understand the answers, it escapes us. It's like you try and get a grasp on it, and it slips through your fingers, He says, God has organized these things. He has a story he's telling, but we don't always get to know. I I had Scott pull this out of our kids' ministry this morning. You know what this is? I know some of you are far away. Maybe we'll put it on screen. Anybody recognize what that is? It's a puzzle piece, right? It's a puzzle piece. And for what it is, it's actually kind of a pretty puzzle piece, right? This is coming out of a thing called a fuzzy puzzle. So it's kind of foam, and it's got some felt on the front. I would pass it around, but I don't think we have time for all of you to experience this tactilely. Um, But you could look at this objectively from the outside and go, yeah, okay, it's an interesting piece of the puzzle. It's orange and blue and green, and there's some polka dots and a... There's a couple of letters. I see an A and an I and an N, right? So you can look at this, and by itself you can go, yeah, that's something. But I'm guessing that most of you in the room, when you look at a puzzle piece, you don't feel a sense of satisfaction, right? You look at a puzzle piece, and what does that do in your heart? It makes you go, what's the picture, right? What's the top of the box? Show me the top of the box. Because without the top of the box, this may be brightly colored and it might be soft to the touch. It might be well made, but it's kind of meaningless without the other pieces. And it's kind of meaningless without understanding the overarching picture that's being painted. What Kohelet is trying to articulate to us in Ecclesiastes 3 is exactly this. What he's saying is that our lives many times are this. And yes, you can enjoy the pleasure of your toil. By the way, he says the best a man can do, the best of all the bad options, if you will, the best of all the best of all the bad options is to do good with your life, right? To enjoy a good meal, to enjoy a decent drink, to enjoy the, the pleasure that's found in your toil, not the byproduct of your toil, but the actual doing of something with your life. Enjoy those things, right? The puzzle piece that you're in It has some prettiness to it, but it's meaningless without the top of the box. Now, I happen to have the top of the box because Scott brought that to me too. And you'll be happy to know that uh, it's a picture of different vehicles, right? So it's, you know, there's rockets and school buses. One of our kids who was dedicated this morning would really love this, right? School buses here. I'm guessing this is a part of a train, but I couldn't have known that unless I had this. And what Kohelet is telling us is that God has given us this. And he has not given us this. That he's created us with a desire to see this. And yet he doesn't give it to us. Now if that makes you feel frustrated, you're starting to understand how Kohelet feels, right? Kohelet is articulating that very same frustration. That God has organized all of this. That there is a picture being painted. That there is a story being told. And we all have a piece in it. And there are things that can be enjoyable in the piece. But they don't really make sense or add up in the grand narrative. Without the story that's being told largely. And we can't know. Let's go on to read back in verse 12. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them. Than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Later in the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll hear Kohelet himself say, while it is God's gift to man to let you enjoy a meal or to enjoy your work, he will say himself that he doesn't feel like he's one of those people that has been blessed with enjoyment in those things, right? So even, and again, he's, he's kind of a downer, right? 
But the implication is that according to Kohelet, he doesn't feel like everybody even has the opportunity to experience the joy in a meal or everybody has the opportunity to enjoy the pleasure in their toil. That God gifts you those things, but he doesn't gift those things to everyone and he himself doesn't feel like he's one of those that's been gifted with that. So you can feel his frustration and you can feel his discouragement. He says there's a time for everything and God knows what it is. But it's frustrating to me because I don't. Verse 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. We talked last week about the fact that Kohelet, whatever else you want to say about him, is a man of faith. This isn't an atheist. It's not an agnostic. This isn't the guy who's going, hey, life is difficult, and so I don't even know if God exists. What he's saying is God exists, and he's doing something, and he has a plan, but I don't get it, and to be honest, there's parts of it I don't like. That's his sentiment, right? There's parts of it I don't like. I like the honesty of that. Here he says, to be honest, you can't change it. You can't turn it. You can't add anything to it or take anything away. Because God is doing something bigger than just your life. He says, actually, in verse 14, God has done it so that people fear before him. We know that in uh, Ecclesiastes 12, because we've looked at this every week, in Ecclesiastes 12, at the end of the whole book, the, the narrator will say, after hearing everything Kohelet had to say, here's what you should do. Fear God, keep his commandments, and trust him, right? Fear God, keep his commandments, and trust him. Here, he says, I think God has organized everything the way he has so that men will fear him. I want you to know that the sentiment here is not so much that we would fear God in a place of reverence and awe, but the sentiment he's articulating is that God has made things this way to try and scare you into submission. That's his perception. That he's basically just trying to intimidate you into following him by making it so that you can't know what he's doing and therefore you're dependent on him, right? That's the sentiment of Kohelet in this text. He says, verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. That seeks what has been driven away is a reemphasis of the idea that there's this cycle that just repeats. The same things happen again and again. And God has a rhythm and a pattern. He's got these different seasons and times. He's making everything appropriate in its time. But we don't know what that is. And God just keeps moving. And nothing we do will interrupt that process. Right? And so it's frustrating. He says, and he gives kind of an example or an illustration. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. Those aren't two different things here. He's not saying wickedness or excuse me, uh, justice in the sense of like uh, the legal system and righteousness in the sense of like a religious system. uh, They're essentially synonymous. So in this particular place, when he says, I looked at the justice and I saw that it was perverted or that there was evil in the justice uh, that I expected. He's, when he says righteousness, he's talking about the two same things. He goes, there are things in the world where I expect justice to be done and justice isn't done. And the people that are supposed to administer justice are corrupt, right? They've been corrupted by power. They've been corrupted by money or they've been corrupted by avarice or whatever. And he says, I look and I expect that there will be a season for justice because God makes a season for everything. But even in where the places where I expect there to be justice, he says, I see evil and wickedness. He says, I saw unto the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And even in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. You hear him circle back to his own thinking from the poem. There is a time for everything. So if I just wait, sooner or later, people will get what they deserve. Sooner or later, justice will be served. And he goes, but then I realize that I'm going to die. 
just like a dog in the street, I'm going to die. And I might not see that justice because I might not be living in the season in which the justice comes to pass. I might not be living in the time period in which people get what they deserve. I might be living in a time period in which the wicked people get more, right? And if that's the case, then what's the point of all this, he says. And he goes so far at the end of this chapter. He says in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them so that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity or hevel. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is a very interesting thing Kohelet does at the end of chapter 3. He essentially throws out Orthodox Jewish understanding of the animals, right? Because from the beginning, the Orthodox Jewish understanding of the animals, number one, is that they were different because they have a different kind of breath in them. You and I, God breathed life into our nostrils, right? The animals are different from us because our breath is different. Here he says, our breath is the same. When I look at it, I see the animals, I see us. The breath doesn't look any different. We also know from the Genesis account that God put the animals in subjection to human beings, that we were called to care for them and to, and to lead and to rule over them, right? And in this case, he says, nah, we're all the same. There is no hierarchy because we both die and we both go into the ground. And he says, before you tell me, right, before you tell me that the soul or the spirit of an animal, it just goes into the dirt, but our souls and spirits go up into the air. He goes, let me just say, prove it, prove it. Prove that our souls don't go to the same place. I look at dead animals. I look at dead people. It looks like the same stuff, right? So the best thing you can do is just enjoy the steak dinner in front of you. Enjoy your work. Do some good, right? You, you hear the futility in his voice, right? Now, now, at the end of the day, chapter 3 is essentially saying in all of this, God has a plan. You can't know it, but you'll ache to, and nothing will make sense right? God has a plan. You can't know it, but you'll ache to because he built you to ache for the answers, right? Now, if, if, if you're new, you're probably like, I'm never coming to this church again, right? This is terrible, right? This guy sucks, right? Um, listen, we're, we're in, we're in Ecclesiastes for a reason because there's, there is also a part of, even if you're going like, wow, this is, this is heavy and bleak, There's a part of this that we don't want to miss, and I'm talking about it every week, but the part of it that I don't want you to miss is that there is not a place in our study of Ecclesiastes where we're going to see the narrator say, Kohelet was an idiot, and he shouldn't have thought these things, and he definitely shouldn't have said them out loud. If he he threw out Jewish Orthodox tradition about our hierarchy over the animals, or if he has questions about the afterlife, he shouldn't say that out loud, and he definitely shouldn't write it down where other people can read it. There is no overarching uh, dismissal of this sentiment. Why? Because I think the the God of the universe knows that he created us with eternity in our hearts, that we long to know the beginning from the end, and that it is a source of frustration and futility for us when we look at the place in which our feet are planted and we don't understand why we're here, or why it's so hard, or why things aren't easier, or why why justice isn't being done the way we want it to, or why righteousness isn't happening as soon as we'd like. He knows we're going to feel this, and so in some of it, I want you to give yourself grace to feel and to think what you think, because Kohelet certainly feels it with you. 
But the other thing we've done every week, and here's where the message pivots, is I've said every week, and hopefully we'll be looking at this every time we study Ecclesiastes together, is to say, what we have this morning in 2023 that Kohelet did not have is Jesus. And Jesus answers some of his questions. Now listen, Jesus doesn't answer all of his questions, but can I give you just a few answers we find in Jesus? A few of the things that he brings up that Jesus actually answers for us that we know better than Kohelet knew? Let me, let me just give you a couple of those. And, and I'll, I'll do this because he's making some conclusions about God, right? He's making some conclusions about God, Kohelet is in Ecclesiastes. And remember, God wants us to know him. But God is infinite and will never know him exhaustively. John 1.18 tells us that no one has ever seen God, but Christ, who sits at his right hand, has made him known. What does that mean? Well, that means God wants you to know him and the clearest articulation, Hebrews 1 says this as well, the clearest articulation of God that you and I will ever have is in Christ. So you want to know what God is like? You have a question about whether or not God is just a fear monger who's trying to scare you into subjection with the way he's organized the universe? If you want an answer to whether or not God is like that, look at Jesus. Because the clearest articulation of what God is like, we find in Christ. Kohelet did not have Jesus to look at, we do. So we look to Jesus to understand some of the things he's saying about God. Are they true or false? And not all of them are answered, but a couple of them are. The first one I've already mentioned, Jesus was not a fear monger. And he was not a manipulator, right? I dare you, you read through the Gospels and you look at the way he treated people. And there is never a place in the Gospels where he's using his power or his knowledge to manipulate people into following him. In fact, most of the time he's looking at people and going, hey, follow me if you will. I think it'd be better for you to follow me. But when they choose to walk away, you know what he does? He doesn't chase them. He doesn't guilt trip them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't talk to them about how terrible things are going to be if they don't stick with him. He lets them go right? He's inviting people to follow him, but there is no manipulation. There are no fear-mongering tactics in the heart of Jesus. And therefore, if you sitting here this morning with Kohelet are asking yourself a question about whether or not the God of the universe is mean-spirited and is trying to control human beings in order to force them into subjection, know that God could do that if he wanted, and that that is not who God is, and we know that most clearly through the articulation of Christ. Jesus was not a fear monger or a manipulator. That's an easy one. Let me give you another answer that Jesus gives us. Jesus was confident about the life after this one. So at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter three, we hear Kohelet going, I look at dead animals and I look at dead humans and you're you're telling me you think one spirit goes up and one spirit goes down. But I gotta tell you, I'm not seeing that from my own observations. I don't know. I don't know where we go after we die, he says. Well, one of the answers that Jesus gives us is to say that there is a life after this one. That there is a kingdom life that he came to procure for us and to offer us, right? In John chapter 11, verse 24, right? John eleven twenty four, 24, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming to the world. In Luke 23, famously, as Jesus hangs on the cross, there is a thief on one side of him who looks at him and says, hey, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, he doesn't say, well, you know what? We're just like animals and there's no real telling where we're going after the cross. What he says in Luke chapter 23, verse 42 
He said, oh, the man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So while Kohelet in Ecclesiastes is looking at men and animals and saying there's essentially no difference because there is potentially no life after this one, or if there is, you can't prove it. Jesus himself believed in a life after this one. Jesus himself believed that while he would not come down off that cross physically on the day of his crucifixion, he would be in paradise that day with this thief who put his faith in him, right? So Jesus answers that question. Is there a difference between us and the animals, right? Is there, a, is there something that happens to our souls after we die? Jesus says yes. And Jesus is the clearest articulation of God that we have, right? So he answers that question. Let me say this thirdly, the way Jesus answers these questions. Part of what Kohelet is frustrated about is that God knows the timing, that the wristwatch is on God's wrist and he doesn't tell us what time it is. We don't know what season we're in and that's frustrating. But one of the things we talked about this week in our In the Kitchen meeting, and it, was, it wasn't on my map before, but it's so true. And so I'm including it here. Uh, Jesus was particularly in connection with time. Jesus had a very keen understanding of what time he was in and what time it was all throughout the Gospels. And this is actually a major theme of the Gospel of John. I don't know why I didn't remember it because we've studied John not that long ago. But all throughout the Gospel of John, there are these emphases about what time it is, right? I'll just read you a couple of these to remind you. But in Mark 1.15, uh, when it talks about Jesus' public ministry, it says in Mark 1.15, Jesus would say, his message was, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel, right? There's a part in Jesus where he understood what time it was. So Jesus is different than us in that a lot of times we look at the place where our feet are planted and we go, I don't know whether this is harvest or reaping. I don't know if I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Jesus knew what time it was, right? He was aware. It says the time is fulfilled. Therefore, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. A couple more articulations of this. Jesus says to his mom when she asked him to turn water into wine in John chapter two, remember this? She says, ah, they ran out of wine. Could you do something about it for the party? Jesus says to his mother in John 2, 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is acutely aware of where he is in time, right? Where he is in the story. John 7, 6, Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. This is when his family wanted him to go to the festival of booths. Uh, in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Acts chapter 1, and I'm only giving you a smattering of these because I want to illustrate the point, but in Acts chapter 1, his disciples say to the resurrected Christ, is now the time you're going to establish the kingdom on earth? And here's Jesus' answer. It, it echoes Kohelet. Acts chapter 1 verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus literally reiterates what Kohelet has said in Ecclesiastes. He says, it's not for you to know when the kingdom will be established. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but I, I can assure you, he says, God has fixed them by his power. It's up to you to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to make disciples. Jesus knew what time it was. Jesus was confident about the life after this one. Jesus was not a fear monger. And I just want to reiterate this as well. Jesus was patient with people's questions and doubts. When Nicodemus comes and says, hey, I, I, uh, I feel like you and I are both pretty, pretty big deals when it comes to spirituality. And Jesus is like, nope. 
He says to Nicodemus, he goes, actually, you got to start all over, right? You want to see the kingdom of God? You got to be born again, right? We don't, we, you got to start from the beginning. And Nicodemus is like, how is that supposed to work? I'm supposed to be born again. I'm supposed to go back inside my mom. He doesn't get it. And Jesus doesn't say, you idiot, you knucklehead. Just think about what I'm saying, right? He's patient. When Jesus says, hey, I'm going and you're going to follow me. And Thomas is like, how are we going to follow you? We don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're talking about. Jesus doesn't say, why did I pick Thomas? You dork, right? John the Baptist famously, right? John the Baptist reaches out to Jesus from prison. And he says, are you the one? Because I'm looking at, at like my feet planted in prison. I'm John the Baptist, right? I'm your cousin of all things. I'm stuck here in prison and I'm looking at you and I'm going, are you actually the Messiah? Because it seems like the Messiah wouldn't let me rot in jail. And Jesus doesn't say anything rude to him. He doesn't curse him or shame him. You know what Jesus says? Look at what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the prophecies. I am the one, but just because I'm fulfilling the prophecies doesn't mean you're getting out of that cell. What's he saying? I got the, I got the clock on my wrist and there is a purpose and a plan. I am the Messiah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a season for you to be set free from jail. What it means is that you, you might be in a season to die in jail. And that's exactly what happens to John the Baptist. Was that frustrating to John the Baptist? You bet right? Frustrating to see his piece of the puzzle and not the whole top of the box? Absolutely. And in that way, these characters are exactly like us. But Jesus says, you can trust me. I've got a plan and a purpose. Some of Kohelet's questions remain. It's important for us to remember, and I'm going to wrap up here this morning. It's important for us to remember that in the season we're in, God is not just in the good days. So go back to the poem, right? There's a season that has been articulated and orchestrated by God and his sovereignty. And and we're in these different seasons. You might not know what season you're in, but here's what you can know. God is in them all. God is in the good days. He's in your good seasons, in your good months, in your good years. He's He's in the seasons that you look on with nostalgia, right? But God is equally in the hard moments. God is equally in the difficult seasons. God is equally in the valley with you, right? God is in all of that. What the poem tells us and what Kohelet is articulating is that God has orchestrated all this. You might not know where you are and you might not know what God is doing, but he is in it. That's the first thing I'd want you to walk away with this morning. The second is this. It's important for us to wrestle with the fact that we don't know everything about God. There's an arrogance, right? There's a, there's a pride that comes with me going like, God has a plan and he should tell me what it is. God has a plan and I'd like to know it so that I can tell him whether or not it's a good one, right? I'd like to know what the top of the box looks like so that I can tell him whether I think that's a beautiful painting or a stupid painting. So he should tell me and then I'll decide. And because he hasn't told me, I'm assuming it's a stupid one, right? It's important for us to recognize the places that pride come into some of these questions. We don't know what God is up to and we don't know what season we're in. So here's an important takeaway from Ecclesiastes 3. What you do know is that you're alive right now. You know you're alive right now. You might not be this afternoon. You might not make it to lunch. And I'm not trying to be morbid, but there is a season for everything under heaven and you don't know what season you're in. This might be your time to die. So redeem the time. You don't have the watch. God has the watch. What do you know? You know you're alive today. Your heart is beating in this moment. What does he say in Ecclesiastes 3? Do good with the time you've got. Do good with the time you've got because you don't know what chapter you're in. You don't know what chapter you're in. Redeem the life you have in the present. And the last thing I, I wrote here in my message uh, sort of conclusion is this. 
your desire, my desire for understanding or for eternity to know the beginning from the end was given to me by God. It is not wrong for you to feel frustrated at not knowing what's going on. He built you for that. He built you to have a longing in your heart that cannot be satisfied by you yourself. God gave that to you not to frustrate you, but to remind you that you're meant for more than this absurd life. That longing for understanding, that longing for the top of the box, that longing to see beyond your puzzle piece, God put that in you not to make you mad, not to make you angry, not to make you frustrated. He put you in that space and he put that longing in you to remind you that you're meant for more than just this. That you're meant to be a part of the big picture and to trust him. So we could turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 18, where it says in the end, here's the bottom line, right? Fear God keep his commandments and trust in his judgments. You might not see it today, but God is good. Christ reveals that to us in a way Kohelet didn't even know, right? And God has put that longing to know the beginning from the end inside you, not to make you frustrated, but to help remind you that there's someone bigger than you and there's a purpose greater than yours. Carry that with you. It's a good thing to remember. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would give all of us a sense of who we are and that that wouldn't be discouraging to us, that we would find joy in the little things, in the the little gifts of God, the ways in which you have blessed us in this moment. We don't know what chapter we're in. We don't know what happens tonight or tomorrow, but we know that we've got this moment here and now to fear you. And by that, I mean to revere you. We've got this moment here and now to trust you. And to keep your commandments, to do good with the, with the minutes we've got. Not understanding the top of the box necessarily, but getting glimpses of it in the revelation of Christ. In his death and resurrection, we see something of the top of the box. We glorify you for that. Help us to live in peace with the recognition that the, the, the watch is on your wrist. And that's exactly where it belongs. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.